And now would you turn in your Bibles with me, while you remain standing, let's turn together in the Word of God to Mark chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading at verse 9 through verse 13. Mark 9, 9 through 13. If you're visiting with us, uh, I've been preaching a series through the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, we come here to this passage. Last time, uh, we uh, looked at the earlier verses of Mark 9, which, are, uh, which record for us the transfiguration of Jesus, where they went up a mountain and he was transfigured uh, and uh, was glorious, and Moses and Elijah were speaking with him on the mountain. So we looked at that last time. Now we're uh, looking at the immediate, uh, the post transfiguration portion, uh, verse 9 through verse 13. Let's now quiet our hearts to hear the word of God. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, guide and lead us, O Lord, to know and to understand your word We thank you, Father, for Scripture, and we know that it has been inspired by you and is profitable for teaching and reproving and correcting and training in righteousness. And Lord, that is the desire of our hearts, that we would hear and be changed. Bless its proclamation from this pulpit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. The very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we read that Mark tells us that this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that Jesus went about preaching the Gospel, proclaiming the Gospel of God, and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And this is important that we understand this. Now that we're in chapter 9, we're getting some distance away from chapter 1. We don't want to lose sight of what Mark is recording for us. He, he is telling us this is Jesus and this is the message. This is the intent of Jesus' ministry to proclaim the gospel and to call people to faith and repentance and belief in him and in the gospel. And uh, I want us to recognize that as we look at this passage today. It's a, it's a little bit strange, the passage is. I, I certainly uh, would agree uh, that they're reading through that, it's, we scratch our heads saying, what's, what's going on in this passage? And so we want to unpack that this morning. But before we delve into that, it's, uh, you know, there are some events in our lives, some events in your lives that are very memorable that have been very memorable to you, that you never forget. It could have been maybe your first day at school or your wedding day or the birth of your first child 
These are times you never forget. Maybe, maybe a great vacation that you had. He says, like, that is, I'll never forget how wonderful that was. I mean, there, there are just events in our lives that really impact us, and we just won't forget them. The transfiguration of Jesus was one of those events for Peter. He never forgot. When he wrote Second uh, Peter, uh, that was about 40 years after this, and there, in that uh, letter, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he's talking about this event, uh, the, the, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. He says, we saw him in his glory, and we heard the voice coming out from the glory, saying, this is my beloved son. But then he says something else. He says, we heard the voice from the majestic glory, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you would do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place. And so you think about that. What Peter is saying there is he's saying, as wonderful as that event was, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, I'll never forget it. What an amazing event that was. But yet he recognizes that God continues to speak. And that word is more sure. God's voice, brothers and sisters, is a present voice. God's word is a living word. Not just past, old, stuffy, ancient. God's word speaks today to you this morning. Jesus, as they're coming down the mountain, tells his disciples to keep it quiet, what they saw, until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And we're told that the disciples really didn't understand that. They were questioning what this rising from the dead meant. So I want us to look at, first of all, what caused that questioning, what caused the confusion of the disciples, and then secondly, how Jesus responds to that, uh, and then looking at uh, what that really means for you and me uh, today. That's where I want to go with this uh, message this morning. The disciples were confused, and they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Verse 10. Now, this doesn't mean that the disciples didn't have some category of resurrection. They did. It, it, it was uh, Judaism 101 that, that, that there was a belief in the resurrection at the end of time. That was common belief in Judaism. You might recall when Jesus uh, came to Bethany uh, at the death of Lazarus, and he is talking to Martha, and he said to her, your brother will rise again. And how did Martha respond? Well, she said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So that was common knowledge. That was common belief among Judaism. So, so it wasn't the, 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 the concept of resurrection that the disciples were confused about. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. It was the hope of the people of God to believe in the resurrection. They had that. But the disciples only understood the resurrection 
as being in the final eschatology, at the end times, the forerunner of the final judgment. So there's, two, there's a couple of things here that was puzzling the disciples that they didn't quite understand. The first thing is, you know, when Jesus told them that they are to remain quiet until uh, the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What that told them was, if the Son of Man must rise from the dead, that means the Son of Man must die. <laughs> and they didn't have really a, a, a category for that. They're really asking, what does death and resurrection have to do with the Son of Man? You see, you might recall, remember in Daniel chapter 7, where uh, we have this pro uh, prophecy of the Son of Man coming, and He's coming with great glory and fanfare, and the nations are falling before Him, bowing before Him. That the disciples understood. They understood that Messiah, the one of glory, and remember, then, in, uh, it, they understood what Jesus said in just the previous chapter, in chapter 8, Mark 8, 38. The Son of Man will be coming in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, the disciple got that. They understood the, the Son of Man being glorious, victorious. But what's this death stuff? <laughs> How does that relate? to the Son of Man. They didn't have a category for the Son of Man suffering and dying. They didn't have that category at this point. So they were confused. They were mystified, perplexed about what Jesus had been teaching. And we've seen that already. This is why I titled it, The Son of Man Must Suffer, and I put two, because we saw that earlier in chapter 8. Jesus made very clear the Son of Man must suffer. And in that case, Peter took him aside and said, you know, rebuked him, uh, and Jesus in turn rebuked Peter. Here, Jesus is bringing it out again. The Son of Man must suffer and die, and then he will rise again. And the disciples were mystified and perplexed at this. So that was one of the reasons that they were questioning what this meant. They, they didn't have a category for the Son of Man suffering and dying. But what's also confusing to them is, you know, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And, and, and so what was confusing to them was that this is a resurrection that he's talking about that's very near. Because we're going to be talking about it after it happens. So we're going to still be alive. This is a resurrection that's very near. And they didn't have a category for that either. Their category was only a resurrection at the end of time. And so Jesus' instruction indicated that there would be a resurrection very soon. And they didn't understand a near resurrection and so they asked Jesus a question. This is where it might get confusing without grasping some of this background. They said, well, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? You see, if the resurrection is so near, where is Elijah to accomplish his promised work? Where is the Elijah promised in Isaiah chapter 40? 
who had come to make straight the way of the Lord. Where is Elijah that is prophesied in Malachi 3 and Malachi 4? Malachi 4 or 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You see, they were just seeing this as something way at the end of time. Before these great events, Elijah must come to make straight the way of the Lord, to restore the people of God. So why, why do the scribes tell us that Elijah must come? You see, they're very confused. None of this made sense to them. And so Jesus responds. Jesus answers their complexity and their questioning. He explains the scriptures to them. It's kind of like in you know, Luke 24 when Jesus, after his resurrection, and he's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Oh, foolish and slow of heart, not to believe all that the scripture had spoken concerning me. So that's where Jesus is at right now with his disciples. And what Jesus does is he confirms what the disciples have said. He confirms the scripture. Elijah has indeed already come. We're not just talking about the end times here. And Jesus, of course, is speaking of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. This is very clear, by the way, in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 17. They understood Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist. Now, John wasn't Elijah back from the dead. John wasn't Elijah reincarnated. But rather, John the Baptist was one who came in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. Remember, the angel said to Zechariah, Elijah's father, about John, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Jesus is saying this Elijah has come. It's John the Baptist who had a ministry of restoration, preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. So the disciples, they, they read the Old Testament. They, they were anticipating Elijah, but they were anticipating Elijah to come at the very end of time with some cataclysmic, cosmic restoration in preparation for the coming of the Son of Man, the Messiah. That's what they were thinking about. That's what they were anticipating. And so they asked the question, if the resurrection is coming, where's Elijah? And Jesus is saying, Elijah has come. John the Baptist has come. But he came preaching repentance and with a baptism of repentance, preparing people and their hearts to receive Jesus. So Jesus confirmed the scriptures. And then he explained the scriptures that the Son of Man must suffer and die. The reason that is so, in verse 12, he says, Elijah does come first to restore all things, 
And then he says this, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, again, you, you might ask, what, what is Jesus doing here? What's he, what's he saying? Why does he bring this up? Well, what Jesus is doing is he's asking this question in order to teach the disciples something. In your understanding, disciples, of Elijah's coming to restore and to prepare, in your understanding, there's no room for a suffering Messiah, a suffering Son of Man. In your understanding, there's no room for that. So why does the scripture speak about a suffering son of man? You see, and what Jesus is doing is he's just, he's just bringing them back to the scriptures. You, you believe some of what the scriptures teach, but you don't get the full thing. You don't, you don't get it all. The son of man must suffer and die. You're grasping certain aspects from scripture, but you're missing really the main point. Is what Jesus is saying. Why do the scriptures teach that the Son of Man must suffer? Many things. And die and rise from the dead. Not at the end of time, but soon. Very soon. Jesus is teaching them that the Son of Man, the, what Daniel 7 says about the Son of Man is true, but also what Isaiah 53 says about the Son of Man is true. That he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, cut off from the land of the living. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to be the great sin-bearing redeemer to save judgment-deserving sinners. And as of yet, in Mark chapter 9, the disciples still weren't quite grasping that. The central purpose. But Jesus came, as Mark tells us in Mark 1, to proclaim the kingdom of God and the gospel, the good news. So even if the disciples didn't quite get what Jesus is, is doing, who Jesus is, and what, what the mission of Jesus is, just want to make it very clear, brothers and sisters, Jesus is making clear to the disciples that he must suffer and die and rise again to be the Savior for sinners. And he keeps driving that home to the disciples he keeps driving it home. You know, Jesus was the son of man, but, but unrecognized, and, and we might even say hidden. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him, and his own did not even recognize him. And, you know, we share in that as, as Christians. Understand this, as, as those who profess Jesus Christ, who belong to Jesus Christ, we often, too, will remain hidden and unrecognized in this world. John the Baptist was cut off in his prime by Herod and Herodias. Jesus was despised and rejected. You think about your condition in Christ Jesus. Who you are 
You are an heir to eternal life. In Christ Jesus, you are an heir to life everlasting. You are one whom the Almighty God loves and runs to and puts his arm around. That's who you are. And you will reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. That's who you are. And the world doesn't see it. The world goes by and doesn't give you a second glance. (laughs) Think of that. We're hidden and veiled in this world. But God's faithful servants are no greater than their master. John says this in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What we will be has not yet appeared. Right now, we just walk in a kind of hiddenness. But also, not only do we share in the hiddenness of the Son of God and Son of Man, we share in the suffering and the rejection of the Son of Man. You know, John the Baptist came, and the world did to him whatever they pleased, uh, Jesus said. Herod and Herodias cut off his head. And if they did that to John, it's not surprising that they would do something similar to the Son of Man whom John proclaimed. You see, the theology of the cross is native to who we are, to the life of faith. Elijah experienced that in the Old Testament, John the Baptist in the New Testament, but supremely Christ himself. And we are united to Christ by faith, so we should not be surprised. How could we not share in his suffering? No, we don't go looking looking to to suffer. We we don't need to look for suffering and uh, and rejection. I think faithfully following Jesus, particularly in the world in which we are now living, more and more we're seeing that. Just faithfully following Jesus will bring it. The world's going to hate us more and more because we don't kowtow to their definition of marriage, to their definition of sexual morality, to their definition of this or that. They're going to hate us more and more. And this is exactly why Jesus taught just in the previous chapter that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. If you would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Paul says in Romans 8, if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's just part and parcel of, who, of, of, of what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. We share in his hiddenness. We share in his suffering. But Paul here says, this is, this is wonderful, that we may also be glorified with him. We share in his glory, the glorious future that we have ahead with the Son of Man. In Revelation 19, we get such a wonderful picture of this. It speaks about the marriage feast of the bride, the church with Christ. And then in Revelation, Revelation 21, behold, 
the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I love that. Jesus says, write these down, John. These words are trustworthy and true. Yes, we will suffer with Christ, but we will also be glorified with him. That's trustworthy and true. The Son of Man must suffer many things and die but he will rise again. He died to take away our sins, to remove the guilt, and he rose again for our justification. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing to us the purpose and the mission for which Christ came. And Lord, we thank you for bringing us into Jesus' story, for including us into his story. And Lord, we pray that you would give us strength while we live in this world. We know that our uh, really high and exalted positions as children and heirs of Jesus Christ is unseen, unrecognized, and even despised in this world. And we know, Heavenly Father, that being faithful to you and to your word, and as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, that, Lord, we will share in his suffering. We understand these things. And, Lord, we pray that you would give us the, the, the strength when these hit, hit us hard, and when we are beset with the struggles and the battle. Oh, Lord, help us. It's good, to Lord, to be instructed in your word. You, you are kind, Lord, to tell us that we may suffer and we will suffer. But we thank you, Lord, that that is not the end and that's not the final word, but that we will also rise again and be glorified with our Savior for all eternity. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.